If you would bow with me, and then we're going to look at those two passages that Wallace just read to us just a minute ago. But let's pray first before we do. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time that we have to gather here together. Uh, We pray, uh, as we just sang, that we need you. We need you to lead and to guide and to teach us. We pray uh, that through the preaching and the proclamation of your word and your gospel, that you would meet us in this place, that you would come and illuminate uh, your scripture to our hearts and our minds, that you would show us. Uh, the areas that maybe we're not fully trusting you, but I pray that you would immediately come in what you always do and point us fully to Jesus and what that means for us, that you do love us and in the ways that you're active and moving in all things. And so we pray that as we open your words, that you would be glorified by everything that is done and said here today. I pray that you would speak directly uh, to each person here, that you would uh, speak to their heart and their mind and show them clearly the ways you love them and the ways you're moving and we thank you for that. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, one of the very uh, first classes I took in seminary was uh, the very first semester. Actually, I took a few different classes, but one of those classes was on hermeneutics, which is how to study your Bible. I never understood in seminary why they have all these words that nobody knows what they mean, and then you have to define them all the time. So hermeneutics, which just means how to study your Bible. And I remember going and taking that class and there was uh, this, this uh, phrase that my professor, Dr. Harvey, used to say pretty much every class we were together. And it almost became kind of the banner over as we studied God's word. And what Dr. Harvey used to say all the time is that context is king. And he'd always talk about how context is so important in learning to study God's word and not taking things out of context. That, that when we do, when we begin to pull verses out or we pull things out of context and we don't understand what's going on, that we can quickly distort or change, or get the meaning completely wrong, or backwards. And so it's very, very important when we come to God's Word that we're seeing the fullness of what He was saying, and who He was talking to, and how, and what that looks like, and coming to the meaning in that way. And so it's very important for us when we begin to think about context. Uh, if you, I, could, I would make the case to you that you don't even have to think about it in terms of the Bible to know this is true. Everyday communication, you know that context is important. For example, in, in my house... Uh, probably once a week, my boys will say, can we go get ice cream after dinner? Or can we go somewhere for dessert? And, and most of the time, uh, honestly, it's just no, we're not doing that. But every once in a while, I'll say, uh, yes, we can, but you need to clean your plates. You need to put your plates up. You need to go take your shower real quick. And there's no fighting or we're not going, right? But if you do those things, then yes, we will go get ice cream. And so inevitably what happens is they don't put their plates up and then they're fighting And they're rolling around on the floor and an hour later they haven't taken a shower and they're like, okay, can we go get ice cream? And it's like, no, we're not going to get ice cream. I told you you need to clean your plate and take your shower and and not fight. And they go, but you said we can go get ice cream, right? They get real upset. Like you said, you said we could go get it. And it's like, yeah, I did. But I also said you need to do these other things. And so what they do is they discard the part of what I said that they don't like. They just throw that out and they go, no, no, you said we could go get ice cream, right? That's, that's why context is important, because I did say we could do it if we did these other things. Well, we oftentimes do the same thing with the Bible. We'll pull a verse, a little part of it that we like and disregard the rest and oftentimes even change the meaning. And it's a scary thing when this is God's eternal life-giving word that he showed us what he's like and who he is. And when we disregard the way in which he's communicated with us. And so I start there this morning because we're going to look at the second commandment that Wallace read to us just a second ago. 
Exodus 20, which is God speaking the Ten Commandments for the first time. And Wallace read that to us just a second ago. And what we see in that command is there's a warning and a promise that God gives. And if you take those out of context, you can mess that up real quick. In fact, I've often heard people, the warning that God gives in Exodus 20, verse 5, completely destroy the meaning of that. And so I want us to place it in its context because there's an important principle there that we see that when we uh, continue to walk in idolatry, it has far-reaching consequences, not only to us, but the following generations. And that warning is there, and we need to think about that, because then we're going to go to Genesis, and we're going to see how that plays out so clearly in Genesis. As we've been looking at Abraham and his family and his son Isaac and now his son Jacob, we see some of these patterns repeating. And so we're going to see that principle played out in full. And then lastly, we're going to end with how do we ever break that cycle? How do we ever get out of that? And so I want us just to start in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 4. And I'm just going to read it again. Wallace read it just a second ago. But hear God's word as we think on this together. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so if you know the Ten Commandments, if you've read that, Exodus 20 is the first speaking of it. The people gather around the mountain and God's voice goes out and he gives the Ten Commandments. Number one is no other gods. And then the second commandment here is no idols. You're not going to make an image of anything in creation and begin to bow down or worship it. And so if you've been with us in this church for any given amount of time, I talk about idolatry a lot. The idols of our heart and the things in our life that we begin to functionally serve and make greater than God in our life. And so when we talk about idolatry, that's what we mean. It's not just an image or an idol that we physically bow down to, although the context would certainly point us to that. That was common in the day. But at the same time, it's anything, the good things that God gives us that we elevate to a place above God. And so you've probably heard me say this a lot if you've been here before idols are good things that become ultimate things in our life so for example good thing that god gives us he gives us the gift of a spouse or he gives us the gift of children or he gives us the gift of a job or talents that he gives us and those things are all good gifts but the problem becomes when we elevate them to the ultimate thing in our life if you make the, your children the ultimate thing in your life that's going to cause problems if you make your spouse the ultimate thing in your life and where you will ultimately find happiness, it will cause problems. No one can stand the weight of that. God was designed to be the center of all things. And so that's what we get at at the heart of that command on idolatry. I'm going to leave that there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. If you have particular questions about that, come see me and let's talk about it. I wanted to skim over it. But I want us to really think on what it says here about that warning that he gives in verse 5. Because that's where we get into some weird things and some bad teaching if we're not careful about the context and what God's saying there. Because in verse 5, he talks about being a jealous God. And he talks about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. And you go, whoa, what's going on there? 
What's the deal with what God is saying when he tells us that? And so we need to put it in the context of what we're talking about, which is idolatry. It's serving other things in your life as being more important than God. And so when we begin to serve those things in our life, for example, when we make our happiness dependent on the job we have or the house we live in or the car we drive or what school our kids get into or all the things that we will make our identity and our happiness cling to, when we do that, we're making them idols in our life. And it has far-reaching repercussions, not only to us, but to the next generation. It causes all kinds of issues. And God says real clearly here at the beginning, he warns us of that. He says, I am a jealous God, don't do that. Again, when we hear that, when we hear this idea that God is jealous and what that looks like, we kind of recoil and go, oh, I don't like that. In fact, I heard Oprah Winfrey once say that she walked away from the church because she heard her pastor say God's jealous. She decided she didn't want a jealous God. Why would I want a God that's jealous? That's a horrible thing. Well, the problem that she was doing, and I think a lot of people do when they hear that, is they assign human characteristics to God. For me to be jealous... It would be because of all kinds of deficiencies in my character and different things, wanting things that aren't really due to me. It's actually idolatry on my part. I'm making myself an idol in my life and I want all these things. But see, if God is jealous, God is actually the creator and sustainer of all things. He actually is the greatest thing there is. He's the center of all of it. He actually holds, literally holds all things together by the power of his word. And he deserves that praise. Not only does he deserve that praise, it's what's best for you. God loves us so much that he's not going to allow and just say, yeah, just go make those other things idols in your life. He says, no, I'm a jealous God and I'm going to show you that you need me to be the center of your life. And it's actually born out of his great love. And so God says, I am a jealous God, and I don't want you to give that to anything else. Don't even begin to let other things rise to that level in your life. You know, when Jesus comes and walks on the earth, he says the same thing. He says it over and over. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you love the Lord, your God, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you love your neighbor as yourself, right? So he says, you start here with this love of God first, and then out of that, you love other people. Or when Jesus calls people to be his disciples, he says, if you're going to come be my disciple and you're going to come follow me, you have to hate your mother and your brother and your father and your family. And you go, whoa, what is he talking about? Well, that hate, which we see here with Leah, we'll look at that in just a second, that that language that's used that God uses about hating is actually a comparison that every relationship in your life in comparison to how much you love God should look like hate. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so what he's saying is don't put these other things in front of me. That's the heart of idolatry. And so when we start to look at the warning that he's giving us, the picture that is here is simply this. It's not what sometimes people will pull it out of context and say. It's not this. And so hear this clearly. I've actually heard people say this. I've seen this in person where somebody walks into a hospital and a young child is sick and they turn to the parents and they say, what did you do? What sin in your life? God's now giving this to you. He's punishing you because of what you did in your life. 
And they've totally misused and abused this text and taken it out of context. That's not what God's saying. If you've ever heard that, please hear me. That's not what God's word says. Go read Ezekiel chapter 18. Because Israel was starting to buy into that lie. And God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel. And he told them, you go tell my people, I don't deal with people like that. And the whole chapter is like that. He goes right through and he explains to you. So that's not the case. That's not what's going on here. And so we go, well, what is going on here? When I make idols in my life and I continue to go in those ways and these different things and I'm serving these different things, I'm teaching and showing my kids in the next generation. And it doesn't even have to be our children. Culturally, we can teach the next generation different things by what we value, by what we make ultimate in our lives. And so when I continue to tell my kids, uh, God is where you'll find your hope. It's always going to be in God and resting in him. But then when my life says something completely different, I'm teaching them. God will bring you happiness and joy. But then what they see me seeking joy in entertainment always. That speaks louder than my words. And so we begin to sow those things in. The things that we say get sown into the next generation. In fact, I listened to a, a lady who's a Ph.D. the other day on the radio talking about millennial generation is now known as the me generation in some way. She wrote a book called The Me Generation. And what she did is she went through 12 million surveys of the way people look at different things going back to the 1970s. And so what she said is you see clearly an individualism growing from the baby boomers to Generation X to the millennial generation. And it's just growing. The way that we define everything now is based on how I feel about it with me at the center. And it started three generations ago. And she can show you exactly how it moves and how it works in these different ways. And you've seen that sewn into our culture over time. And so when we begin to make idols of different things, what happens is we embrace those things and we continue and it goes on. And that's exactly what God says. I'm going to visit the iniquity on the fathers on, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. But then he says, of those that hate me, those that continue in these idols, it's going to continue to be a problem. And so I would say all that to go back to Genesis to say this. We see this exactly in Genesis. We see it played out all the way through. And so as we get to where we are in Genesis chapter 29, we're seeing Jacob. He's running from his brother Esau, who's trying to kill him. If you were with us two weeks ago, we hit on a lot of these things about the idolatry of our heart. And what we talked about is that Jacob was desperately seeking his position and his worth through the blessing and the birthright. The power and position that that gave him, and that was the idol in his life. And what we saw from his parents, Isaac, his dad, Isaac was putting his hope in his son Esau, and that was his favorite. And there was this awful favoritism in their family. His mother, Rebecca, was putting her hope in Jacob, so much so that he was her favorite. And you saw the idols their children had become in their life and what it was causing in their own family. And you see it so clearly played out as you read through Genesis and you see those things happening. In fact, at the end of a chapter, I think it's 27. We looked at just a couple of weeks ago. Rebecca says at the end about Jacob, he's about to flee to run away because his brother wants to kill him now. And she says, oh, if he marries a Hittite woman, my life will be over. Right. 
Like, like she's making her entire life be on her son and who he marries and what that looks like. And you just see it in her language. And you see these things in this subtle idolatry being sewn in. It's a good thing to love your kids, but when your whole life is dependent on your children, they've become an idol. And so you start to see that. And so as we've been following that through, we've been seeing this come down. And I want you to remember who this family is. Isaac is the son of the promise, Abraham's son. The one that God said, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. Right? That goes all the way back to Genesis 3. As sin entered into the world, God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to send the Savior through the seed of a woman, Eve, that's you. But then he picks it up with Abraham and it says it's going to come through your family. And then we follow it to Isaac and now it's with Jacob. And here's this family that God's going to do this great thing. And they're a mess. Idolatry all the way through the family in all these different ways. And so when we pick up in chapter 29, Jacob has run to get away from his brother, but also to go back to the land they came from to find a wife. We looked at last week as God breaks in and he tells Jacob, I'm not done with you yet. But he's still got all this stuff swirling around. And so he goes and he finds his family and he falls in love with this girl, Rachel. And he makes a plan to marry her. I will work for seven years to marry Rachel. And guess what happens? The swindler Jacob gets swindled. Laban, his uncle, comes and he takes advantage of him and he marries him off to his older daughter Leah first. If you know that story, the wedding night, he gets him drunk, he brings her in, she wakes up the next day and it's Leah instead of Rachel. And he goes and says, what are you doing? We had a deal. And he says, okay, well, I'll give you Rachel too, but you've got to work another seven years. And so he does. And that's the story of where we are. By the way, just as a side note, you see polygamy at different times in the Bible. It's never ordained by God, and it's always a disaster. Like, I needed to tell you that, marrying two sisters, one guy. You can kind of figure that out. But it's always a myth. It's always a mess. And so that's the picture that's here, right? And so that's where we are when we pick up. He's now got these two wives, two sisters, one that he kind of got duped into taking and the other that he's madly in love with. Right? It's going to tell you Leah's hated. Again, that's that comparison. He desperately loves Rachel, so in comparison, she's hated. It doesn't mean that he was necessarily mean to her or those kind of things. It's just a comparison. But look at what happens when we pick up in this story. In verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. Right? You start to see that favoritism already in there. You can, you can imagine how that's going to work out. How that's going to look. He desperately loves Rachel, but not so much Leah. And so then look at what happens. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and they called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction from now, my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's also given me this son. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And therefore his name was called Levi. I just want to ask the question as you stop there for a second with Leah. Where is her hope in her life? Where is she seeking her worth and her value and the things that she's holding to as most important? It's in her children and it's even in her children so that her husband will love her. And so she's putting all of her 
uh, hope in her family in her kids and hoping that her husband will one day love her in the way that she desires. But then look at what happens in chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Where have we heard that before? Right? It sounds an awful lot like her mother-in-law, does it not? If Jacob marries the wrong person, my life is over. And you see the same things being sown over again. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from from you the fruit of the womb? And she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her and she conceived and bore Jacob a son. Let me just ask the question if you've been with us or you've read through Genesis before. Where have we seen that move before? Right. Grandpa and grandma did the same thing. Abraham, as God had promised a child, I'm going to do it through you and Sarah. They go off and they decide to do it through their maidservant. And it caused all kinds of problems. We see the same thing again. And so then Rachel said, God has judged me and also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. What do you think that family's like? It's a disaster in pretty much every way. I would hate to be living in that house. Right? You see all the mess that's there. And then you get down to verse 22 and it says, God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. And so I want you just to think about what's going on in this family and all that happens here and as they go through it and what it looks like. You have all these ladies, you have Jacob, you have the whole family showing favoritism, seeking their joy and their worth in children and relationships and all these things that are good gifts that God's given us, but they were never meant to be the ultimate thing. And they're seeking it in all these ways and all these things. And I want you to think about what that family life was like. You've got Rachel saying, aha, I've prevailed against my sister. It's some kind of competition. You've got at the beginning it telling us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. What do you think is going to happen when he loves this wife more than anything else? And then she's barren for all these years. And then finally, in verse 22, she gives birth to a son. How do you think he's going to treat this son, Joseph? And spoiler alert, if you haven't read ahead. It's going to be great favoritism. It's going to buy him cool clothes. Right? It's going to give him a neat jacket with all sorts of colors that he's not going to give to his brothers. He's going to repeat the exact same thing that he saw his mother and his father doing in his family. And it's going to cause all kinds of problems. In fact, it's going to make that kid, Joseph, really, really arrogant and self-absorbed. He's going to be a narcissistic guy. And guess what? His brothers are going to hate him. They're going to hate him so much that they're going to be willing to sell him into slavery. Actually, they're going to want to kill him. And then that's kind of plan B that will sell him. But you see all the mess of all these things over and over and over again. And that's what happens when we decide to take good things and make them ultimate things in our lives. That's the kind of issues that we deal with. 
Those are the things that get sewn in and then you start to see them come out in the kids and in the next generation and the next generation. Now, be honest, you read this story and you see what God warns of and then you see it played out here and you go, this is just depressing. It's a sad story when you really stop and think about it. It's a mess. But it even gets a little worse when you realize that we do the exact same thing. Learned real quickly when I have kids. They're little mirrors of you. Right? You go, why is he talking that? Oh, wait, that's what I say. That's what I do. Right? I remember Asher being two years old. And he kicked something and he was muttering. I thought, what is he do? Oh, no. That's what I do. Right? And you start to see it. And you start to go, oh, no. And you tell your kids. We love Jesus more than anything else in all the world, but is that what they see in my life? They see when I'm frustrated or when I'm upset or when I'm tired. Do I go and turn on the TV and lay there or do I seek God for my faith? And he starts to go, oh no. A lot of times I'm sowing all kinds of things in there. And you read that and you go, oh. We do the same thing in our culture. The church today, and we say Jesus is our king, and he's in control of all things, and we trust him, but if our guy's not elected, the world's falling apart. And we operate in fear, and we operate in anger, and we look just like the world. And we sow in the idols of all these different things, and we do it over and over again. And we continue to sow those seeds in our idolatry. They go, oh. So we could stop there. And go, good luck. Have a good week. <laughs> They're like, oh, this is awful. Thankfully, that's not the end of it. Thankfully, there is good news hidden here, even in this passage. And so go back to Exodus for just a second. That verse 5. It says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the Father's from the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Right? Do you start to see why God says I'm a jealous God? I love you so much, I don't want you going down this path. It's only going to produce problems and problems and problems. But then look at what he says in verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so you go, yeah, yeah, okay. If we fall into this idolatry, we sow that over and over and it causes problems. But he says, if you love me and you keep my commandments, you have my steadfast love. And you go, yeah, yeah, great. And then you go, well, wait a second. I haven't kept all his commandments. It's like, yeah, okay, I got the answer. But wait a second, I haven't done the answer. That's why it's a problem to begin with. And we go, well, wait a second. How does this work? And the problem is when we continue to operate in our idolatry, we miss the answer. Because in our idolatry, we see all these stories and we put ourselves into it and we make ourselves the hero and it's about us. And when we do that and we hear God's command, and he says, keep all my commandments and my steadfast love for thousands. You go, yeah, but wait, I haven't done that. That's because I'm putting myself at the center of the story. But here's the thing. The whole story is not about me and it's not about you. It's about God and his faithfulness. 
We see all the way through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and on down. They're all a mess. They're a disaster. In all these ways and in all these things. And they continue to look for these different things. But the story is about how gracious God is in all that. And so when you look at Genesis chapter 29 and you see Leah, you got to feel for Leah. He desperately, she wants to be loved. She wants her husband to see her. She says, I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want to be attached. Do you see that there? She says it over and over and over again. You know why she's saying it over and over and over again? She still doesn't have it. She's still looking for it. But then she gets to verse 35 and she conceived again and she bore a son and she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah and then she ceased bearing. And so I want you to think about that picture. We make idols out of these different things and we seek it and we seek it and we try and we try and we try and we never rest. And it's difficult and it doesn't work. And it's exactly because of what God was warning us of. Don't have any other idols. Don't put anything before me. But I read that and I see there's Leah in the midst of the emptiness of her own idolatry and the hollowness of that God's gracious and he breaks in. She goes, this time I'm just going to praise God. Instead of using it for other things, I'm just going to thank God. And this incredible thing happens because God is so gracious in the midst of this. We don't find this out until later in Genesis. But the line of Abraham goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And we've been talking about it over and over. What's the promise? What's the whole story about? It's the coming promise that God's going to do through the seed of Abraham, the lion of Judah, Jesus. This whole story is not about them. It's about what God's doing in spite of them. And he continues to bring what he's going to do all the way through it. And so when you read in Exodus 20, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, and we all go, but we haven't done it. None of us have done it perfectly, which is why God gave the Abrahamic covenant to begin with. Because he's going to send one who can do it and who has done it. And he keeps it completely in every way. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians. I want you to think about this picture that's here. The sins that we repeat over and over and over again, generationally, one after another, and we see these things. The Bible talks about our sins in those ways oftentimes as curses. Blessings and curses. There's blessings that come with following God and there's curses or consequences that come from not following God. And we're seeing those repeated here in Genesis over and over and over again. Sometimes people will talk about them being generational curses. Now that carries a whole load of bad theology with it. But what it really means is just that picture of there's consequences to our sin. But I want you to hear what Paul says in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You hear what he's saying? We have all this mess from our sins and Jesus says, I'll come and take all of it. I'll become the curse for you. And I'll deal with it and I'll take all those things 
and then I'm going to give you the spirit. Or listen to what Titus 3 says. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and keeps the law perfectly in every way. And he deserves all the blessings that come with it. And instead of taking the blessings, he says, I will take your curses and all your mess on myself and I'll pay for it. And I'm going to give you all my blessings. I'm going to make you clean and new. And I'm going to renew you through the power of the spirit. And he can break that cycle in anyone and everyone. But here's the thing. What about the consequences? What about our sin generationally from one to the next? They don't all go away. Not in those moments. You can put your faith in Jesus and you've sown these things for years and years and years. They're still there. There's still consequences that are there. But here's the promise that God gives us. He is so gracious and he's so loving. My steadfast love to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. That he takes those things And he takes your idolatry and he takes your mess and he begins to use it for his glory and your good. You get to the end of Genesis in Joseph's life. He's borne the brunt of all these things. He sowed himself. He sees himself in his own life. But God begins to change him. He sells them into slavery. He goes to jail. He has all these things happen. And you know what he says at the end of all of it? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He says, God is so good that yes, we blow it. And yes, we sow these things. But he's so merciful and he's so gracious. He says, I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to give you my good works, my blessings. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to remake you. And then I'm going to reuse all your mess for your good. See that that's how big God is? And so wherever you sit today, you go, man, I've done that over and over. If we're honest, I think every one of us would say that in different ways. Oh, man. But you are forgiven and loved completely and fully in Jesus right now. And he says, you come to me, you give me these, and I'm going to remake all of it. And you can trust him in that. And you seek him in that. And he loves you and walks you through and he makes you new and he regenerates you. And he does things far beyond anything you can imagine or think. That's the story that's here. That God is that big and that good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the ways that you're moving. I thank you that you've preserved these stories for us. Of broken people. Making the same mistakes that we make over and over, but yet you are there steadfast and faithful through it all. I thank you that you love us enough to allow us to feel the consequences when we turn from you. That that too is your grace. We thank you that you are jealous for your glory, which is our good, and we thank you for that. I pray today that we would seek to follow you in all things and always for your glory. We thank you that it ultimately rests in Jesus and what he's done. We thank you that you love us enough to come and do that for us. And we pray all of it in his precious name. Amen.